Today on Point01, Aaron Cohen sits down with Dan Goldman, co-founder and managing director of Clean Energy Ventures. Dan has over 25 years of experience in strategy, corporate project management, project development, as well as private equity asset investment and early stage venture investing in the energy industry. He speaks with Aaron about the challenges of normalizing sustainable technology and how society can help bring these innovations to scale. Without further ado, here's Aaron and Dan. Uh, hi, everybody. It's Aaron Cohen uh, from Point01, and I'm here with Dan Goldman, who is a founder and one of the managing directors at, at Clean Energy Ventures. And Dan, you know, before we even get started, I was as I was prepping for this interview, I, I, I found a quotation uh, from one of the things that you guys had written that uh, in MIT in MIT's magazine that uh, I think it's by Dan, your, your colleague, whose name is, I think, David Miller. Da- David says that the clean energy ventures uh, um, philosophy is the following. A core philosophy for us is that the financial performance, the commercial performance of the company and the impact and emission savings are inextricably tied to each other. So that if the company is financially successful, then by definition, they will have massively positive impact on the world and vice versa. If they have a massive positive impact on the world, then by definition, they must be financially successful. Dan, this is the best description I've seen of the point oh one idea. Thank you, Aaron. I I think um, I'm really happy that you read that quote, because Dave su- says it very eloquently, and we live it and believe it every day. And th- in practice, you know, just to diverge for a moment, we have a carbon uh, reduction or greenhouse gas emissions reduction metric that we use to screen all the companies we look at. And so their financial performance and their greenhouse gas reductions are inextricably linked. And that's how we, that's the screen through which we look at opportunities. Um, And this goes all the way back to, you know, when we formed the fund four years ago and started marketing, we started talking to investors. Many of them got it. Many of them were like, yeah, I get it. You know, like if a company grows to scale, um, it's going to have impact on, on the environment. And if it doesn't, it's not. Um, but there were many investors who saw that as um, those two objectives in conflict. And by the time we left the meeting, they didn't see them in conflict anymore. Explain, explaining to investors who were just thinking about financial returns that we want our companies to grow as large as absolutely possible. And if they do that, just by definition, because of the sector we're investing in, they're going to have that impact. And so, you know, because I think there were a lot of investors, non-impact investors, who just looked at financial returns. And when we explained that it is possible to have financial and impactful uh, returns from a climate standpoint, they really started to understand that. But Dan, what, it, it, it feels like timing was critical for that, because if you had tried this 10 years earlier, you might not have been able to make good on that promise, right? So can you talk about, because you have you are an OG clean energy investor, right? I mean, you've really been thinking about the space for a long time. There was a whole decade before that, before the story you just told. So what's changed over the course of that period that allowed you to go to these LPs and say, hey, 
these things can be mutually, they can be mutualistic, if you will, symbiotic. So we, we have been doing this for over 15 years. Um, and I think what we, we've, we've actually written a paper, which is on our website, cleanenergyventures.com. And what, what we evaluated is what happened during the 2006 to 2011 period that made it really such a bust in terms of financial returns for venture capital. And what has changed today? And this was really important for us to learn about and make sure we understood, um, not least of, of which because it drives our investment strategy, but also for us to explain to the investors in our fund um, or the investors we were courting to join our fund. Um, so what has changed is, I mean, there are a lot of things, but you know, for a start, our history has always been an investment philosophy geared toward low capital intensity. And I think during that 2006, 2011, venture capital firms got um, enamored with capital intensive businesses. In fact, the company I used to work for, Great Point Energy, was a capital intensive businesses that, business that raised $280 million of venture capital. That's a lot of money uh, for a venture capital startup. And so, you know, we focused on capital light businesses, not just software. They could be hardware companies, but things that could get to market, grow to scale without needing hundreds of millions of dollars. They weren't going to build their own manufacturing. They didn't need a biofuels plant. Um, so it, it was really our focus has always been on that. And that goes for the fund, too. The other thing that's different is we have a whole range of different players in the market today as compared to that prior period. There are more energy companies, there are more oil and gas companies, there are materials companies, there's chemical companies, and there are generic um, you know, kind of uh, manufacturing and industrial and consumer products companies. Unilever is looking at packaging. Walmart is looking at transportation among many other things. All of these companies are very involved. They're integral to the clean energy ecosystem today. And that's simply not the case um, in the early 2000s when this sector was just going, going, getting going. So having more purchasers, having more partners, having more acquirers in, in terms of strategics in this sector, um, I think is, is critically important for its evolution and maturity. And I think it's really helped the startups, uh, because they've invested in many startups. I think that's really interesting. Let's use that description that you gave to talk about recent investing at clean energy, because um, it's interesting then to see how that thesis you described in terms of capital light has played out uh, recently. Well, um, so I think like many uh, venture capital firms, um, uh, did when the pandemic hit, we um, took a breather from new investing, even though we had a number of companies in early diligence and um, really focused on our eight portfolio companies and wanted to make sure that they were prepared to get through um, this pandemic, um, no matter how long it might last, that they revised their budgets. You know, we looked at their needs of, for capital you know, and just made sure that we shored up the, um, the existing portfolio before doing anything else. But once that was done, and we have an in incredible leadership teams in our companies, and I'm so really proud of 
what we went through there because the maturity and responsibility that we saw was, was really extraordinary among those teams. And so we got really comfortable. I, I mean, not necessarily even reductions in discretionary spending, um, thinking about ways to um, approach the market differently so that they could continue to build their revenues. Um, thinking about creative ways to do technology development when you can't get people together. Um, so all, all the kind of little things added up to um, really taking significant steps to uh, protect their businesses. And th they're coming out of it quite well now. So it was really good to see that. Do, do you want to talk about any of those and how they fit in before we move on to the new investments? I'll give you one example, which is a company called Rebound Technologies. Um, and what they do is that they designed a, a really, really efficient way to address um, the cold chain. So cold flash freezing, cold warehousing, um, which, believe it or not, has relied on technology that's over 50 years old. So this is a technology that can be adopted you know, globally. Um, it's very easy to insert into existing um, freezer warehousing. Um, and it's a market that is really quite consolidated. So there are a few large uh, customers globally that if they were to adopt this technology, it would be a, a, a massive uh, revenue and earnings opportunity. Can you explain to people what membrane investing is? Yeah, so um, I think you're referring to Aqua Membranes, um, which is uh, a, a company we, we invested in recently, as you say. And um, I think what's interesting is we've, we've looked at you know, literally hundreds of water tech investments, even water tech that intersects with energy. So um, the, you know, what people call the energy water nexus. And we've never really done any investing in that space. But um, what really uh, attracted us to Aquamembranes is the potential energy impact they can have by redesigning um, membranes for filtration. And that can be filtration across many different sectors. Um, so um, we're talking about wastewater treatment, we're talking about industrial water. Um, so this, this has you know, pretty broad application. What are the disciplines there that have been brought to bear at Aqua Membrane? It's, you know, I mean, it's, it's polymer, you know, material experts. And I mean, I think what's really exciting about this is they've surrounded themselves with key partners in the industry um, to produce and sell those membranes. So um, they're on a really fast track to deployment. And that's one of the things we really liked because, you know, I'm sure you and your other guests have pointed out that this is not like the internet um, speed. You know, it takes a while to commercialize clean energy technologies, to get them to market, to get market adoption um, and scale. And so when we see something that we think can have impact, can be profitable and can get to market fast. I mean, that's something that we we tend to um, you know look at very carefully. Can you talk about kind of what it means to, you know, you've done a number of Series A investments. They range in size from maybe five to 15 million overall for these companies, right? More yeah. or less. And and so when you say, hey, we, we arrive at a Series A's company where we've, um, We've de-risked the science, but we still have all kinds of commercial risk. What is the trajectory 
that you want to see these companies go on, say, year by year? Like, what kind of milestones does clean energy value uh, in terms of making progress? Yeah. So, um, I mean, we want revenues to scale and margins to be held at a level we, we you know, we think are sustainable. And, and so part of it is, you know, looking at the competitive intensity of any given space. And we can talk about, you know, line vision in the transmission monitoring space or connector in the um, metering uh, uh, space or spark meter in the metering space. All those companies you know, kind of started out with early revenues. And we said, okay, well, you have less than a million dollars of revenues now, you know, when we, when we invest, how do you get from a million to 50 million? What is it going to take to do that? And, and oftentimes we'll start with the endpoint. What do you need to exit? What, what would a strategic buyer look for in this technology? What would they want to see? What kind of market adoption would they need to, to see to validate that this works? Um, and then we'll work backwards from there and say, okay, how many, how many rounds of capital do you need? What milestones do you need to meet? And, and so the scaling is, of course, you know, integral to all of that discussion. How fast can you scale? And really, we'll just do a ton of market research and we'll talk to their existing customers and we'll talk to our network that could be you know, potential customers and just try to get you know, really honest opinions about what would it take for you to adopt this technology? And what's the pathway of adopting it in one place versus adopting, adopting it ubiquitously across your system? So, I mean, this is really interesting because we've started to have conversations with regulators because as everyone knows and has heard of, utilities are really slow adopters, right? They, they'll, you know, everyone talks about piloting to death, right? You, you get, do a pilot for utility, then you do another pilot for utility, you know, and after five pilots, maybe they'll do a small deployment. Um, but what we, we've started talking to utilities about and also to the regulators is why not have everyone come together and say, we're going to do a test, then we're going to do a pilot. If the pilot works, we will agree to do a scale deployment. And here are the metrics the pilot needs to meet to work because we need utilities to move faster if we want to address climate change. How do you communicate to non-traditional clean tech investors that this is important work to do and you're going to make a lot of money doing it? I mean, I think you have to have a belief that um, the markets aren't static. Um, you know, and, and, and I think there's plenty of evidence of that, that utilities are changing the way they think. They're, they are frequently talking about getting disintermediated by solar installers, by solar monitoring companies, by storage developers. Um, so there's a certain fear, I think, if you, you talk specifically about the utility space that utilities need to, to act. I would be, you know, way too optimistic to think that this is an overnight change. But I do think the signposts point to, um, you know, uh, favorable um, uh, guideposts that, that utilities are going to be adopting things and they're going to be adopting them faster. And, and how does that look in 2020 versus, say, 2016, 17. How, would you have said the same thing then? I don't think I would have said the same thing then. Um, I, I think we would have been very wary about investing in any technology that was going to sell to utilities. And we effectively have three of those now. We have 
line vision, um, which has a really strong value proposition for helping utilities understand what's happening on their transmission lines. And when we invested in that company, it was pre-California uh, wildfires or climate fires, as I call them. And, um, you know, at that time, um, line awareness was a big part of their mission, but not something they were really promoting. Once that started, um, the whole value proposition has changed because all of a sudden you're taking a product that can give you dynamic line rating and you're adding on top of that a service to be aware of egress by, by vegetation that might be causing fires on your system. And the liability of that is, as we've seen, is quite extraordinary. So, you know, this is a company that already had a really strong value proposition and it was made even stronger by, by, the, um, by the situation that's evolved in California. By monitoring the lines, you can prevent a fire by taking action. You can, you can, you can go service the line. Yeah, this is a, a technology that doesn't connect to the line itself. So it sits on the poles. So it's non-contact, which is really important. Um, using LIDAR and thermal sensing technology, they're able to see what's happening from a temperature standpoint um, and be able to predict um, challenges like wildfires or, um, or uh, uh, issues of, of galloping and sag that will affect the uh, performance of the line. So that's, that's, that's kind of a, you know, one model. The, another model is a company called SparkMeter, um, which started out as, um, you know, just using innovative meters to um, help monitor customer use in microgrids in Sub-Saharan Africa. But what was really interesting is if you install all these smart meters, um, in a utility uh, distribution system in, in Nigeria or Tanzania or um, any uh, emerging market, um, you can help the distribution utility understand the health of their system. So by putting meters at the customer's level, you can get a reading of what's happening on their system by the power deliveries and other technical data. So, they're able to really take metering, which of course there isn't metering, so that's a whole nother advantage. You start metering your customers and they start paying for their power. Um, but you can also just help them improve the health and performance of their system. You know, you've now mentioned the, you know, international markets, you know, on a couple of occasions in this podcast. How many of your, you know, young portfolio companies are operating abroad? Yeah, well, SparkMeter is the first company that we've ever invested in in our history, over 40 companies um, that had a particular focus on the emerging markets. There definitely are use cases in, um, in, you know, in the U.S. too, but their, their product service offering is really designed for emerging markets. And, um, you know, we, we got comfortable with it because it's a great team. Um, we, again, they're, they're, you know, billion people without power in, in Africa. And we want to make sure that they're not going to be supplied with diesel generators. Um, and, um, uh, and, and, and it was a product offering that we saw as very differentiating the market. So we invested in this with, you know, just a, a great group of investors with Breakthrough Energy Ventures, with Total, uh, with the Schmidt Family Foundation. So we really have like, they're surrounded with a really strong network of, of investors. How much are people in your community, on your team, 
uh, are your entrepreneurs talking about the election and the importance of it, given the conversation we've been having that's, you know, at least been on the periphery if, uh, of policy or dialogues with regulators? We talk about it a lot. Um, I, I think it, you know, we'd be, <laughs> it would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that um, the current administration is not interested in addressing climate change and we are interested in addressing climate change. I mean, that said, um, you know, what we're trying to understand is um, what the future might look like if we have a change in administration. And we're really fortunate to have um, a great strategic advisory board in, in former Secretary Moniz, um, and Ellen Williams, who used to run the RPE program at um, Department of Energy, and Michael McQuaid, who um, was the chief technology officer at, U at United Technologies, and just to, to guide us and, and help think about issues of what the world might look like, you know, three, five, seven years from now, um, and how that might guide our, our investment decisions. And, and this is really important because earlier you asked about what sectors we're most focused on. And we do think about that from you know, the standpoint of customers and the private sector, but we also think about it from the perspective of government and regulation, because I think this, you know, we all, we all can acknowledge that the energy sector is a highly regulated industry. And so if there are gonna be changes in regulations, what are those changes gonna look, what are they gonna look like? How might they affect our existing portfolio? How might they guide our, our new investments? And, and that's something we, we think about basically every day um, and, and seek guidance from those who, who know a lot more than we do. How synonymous is climate tech with clean energy? I mean, how, when, when push comes to shove, is it really all about energy consumption? Well, I, I think clean tech has... Um, been thought of as a broader opportunity um, in addressing things like criteria pollutants, perhaps. Um, and climate tech, I think, you know, we would describe as, as things that are exclusively focused on greenhouse gas emissions reduction. So I think, I think you could see um, uh, clean tech historically as doing things beyond just um, just things that are going to help help the climate, but I, I I think today you know if I think about the opportunities we see, um, I would say there's quite a lot of overlap in terms of those two terms. What can we possibly hope for in terms of improvement in our movement? There are some apocalyptic books that the climate intellectuals have created, whether it's David Wallace Wells or Bill McKibben or any of these people. Um, to read these books is to see an apocalyptic planet 50 to 100 years out. What will give you confidence that we've made progress when we think about 2025? I think that's a great question. Um, and I think there are a lot of things that would make me feel better. Um, but I think there is one that we would say is an overriding issue. And that is that the institutional investing market has not completely bought into this, this trend. Um, you know, we see trillions of dollars of capital sitting on the sidelines little bits and pieces are going into build new wind projects, build utility scale solar, um, build storage, 
Um, but that's a fraction of what is sitting out there um, looking for investment. And so when you think about the pension plans, when you think about the endowments, when you think about the huge amounts of money under management, um, personal money under management in the markets, um, we need that money to flow into this sector. Um, and I, I think there are ample opportunities and ample successes to point to um, that should guide, guide that money into the sector. But we are not going to address climate change unless we have trillions of dollars more. And, and, and that's been confirmed by a UBS report, a Goldman Sachs report, and a Morgan Stanley report. They have forecast tens of trillions of dollars needed to come into this market if we are to um, get, get to a, a reduction in temperature um, of you know, 1.5 or even two degrees. So there's money at, at, at places like Harvard or there's money at places like Fidelity, you know, that it, you would argue could be at the asset allocation could be different. And there could be more capital invested in at least renewables. Let's just use wind. Let's just use wind as an example. You're saying the Atlantic Ocean could have hundreds of, of wind farms up and down the up and down the coast if the money was there. We have the tech for that now. We could build those things. Yeah, I mean, I think there's certain things where, you know, it's not just money. I mean, you have to get those things permitted. You have to get those things interconnected. You have to have market dynamics that work. But, you know, there there is a need for more capital to flow into this sector um, beyond just wind and solar, which seems like, um, you know, the only risk that, you know, some institutional investors are willing to take. But there needs to be more money in innovation, in early stage startup. Um, we need to have hundreds of companies um, commercializing technology, not just tens of companies. And we need, you know, huge amounts of growth capital to scale these technologies to build manufacturing. And I think if, if um, the, the pandemic has demonstrated anything, it's that we cannot trust global supply chains um, when, it, when it comes to critical materials. Um, so if we think about, you know, if we're going to go move to electric vehicles, we're going to move to energy storage, and we don't have the battery manufacturing because 90% of it's in China, um, we, we should rethink that very, very carefully. And that is being um, rethought today because uh, I think there's a lot of concern about where those batteries are come from, coming from and what might cut them off in the future. And so reshoring manufacturing into the US is something that's really getting a lot of attention now in the clean energy sector. And that's going to require tens of billions of dollars to build new facilities here. Why are institutional investors hesitating? What is the issue? Are we back to the same problem with utilities that people just don't like change? Or is there something more pernicious? Is this the fossil fuel lobby? It, it, what's happening here to create that dynamic? Well, I think there, there is the legacy that the 2006 to 2011 period was not um, a good financial return. Um, so, you know, a lot of investors look at history and say, well, what's different today? And like I said earlier, I mean, I think there are a lot of things that are different today, but I mean, I think one has to believe that the companies that say they are committed to carbon neutrality by a certain date, you know, some 2030, some 2035, some 2040, 
um, are going to implement those plans. If you believe that and you start to add up the numbers of what that means in terms of clean energy development, it's, it's um, I mean, it's pretty simple to see that this is a really large market opportunity. I mean, if Unilever starts to transform its supply chain to be carbon neutral, you know, that's a global supply chain, you know, manufacturers all over the world that are gonna need to have solar, they're gonna need to be powered by transportation that is not using diesel fuel. I mean, there's just, it just the, the magnitude of the changes are going to be very, very large and they're gonna drive new innovation. And, 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 and by the way, one of the biggest problems with that is how are you gonna measure it? How are you gonna measure your carbon neutrality? And we, we actually have a, a new investment. I can't talk about it yet. We have a new investment in the carbon measurement space because we think alongside all these new innovations, how you measure your carbon footprint is gonna be absolutely critical and doing it in a way that you know, regulators can trust, auditors can trust, financial markets can trust. I, I agree. I mean, I think that's, that, that, that's gonna be really necessary to have. I do, I, I do think that you've came up with something super interesting there, which is we do need a simple measurement for all of the corporate commitments to carbon neutrality that then translates to energy uh, and energy requirements versus capacity. Dan, in, in closing, what would you say to the entrepreneurs listening to the podcast about the state of, of capital, how, how entrepreneurs can find capital partners to pursue enormously ambitious 0.01 solutions? Well, come to Clean Energy Ventures to start. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, since we've been doing this for 15 years, we've really seen the evolution of um, entrepreneurs and, you know, just the, the caliber of, um, of entrepreneur that comes to us today is so much different than 15 years ago. And I think it's partially because there's a really good ecosystem of support. There's lots of accelerators and incubators and training programs. And so entrepreneurs are learning a lot earlier um, what they need to do in terms of testing the market, getting partners in place, how to commercialize their technology, how to go to market. Um, and the, so this support network is, is critical and, it, and we're really lucky that it's, it's developed in lots of different places, not just the West Coast and the East Coast. I mean, there, there are incubators in Milwaukee and, and um, you know, in uh, Tennessee and in Alabama and Texas and many, many places. So it's great to have that. But I think um, really trying to advance your technology and prove market adoption as much as you possibly can is really important for entrepreneurs when they're raising capital. Um, and uh, making sure, you know, you have a, sustainable competitive advantage. I mean, it sounds like, you know, um, a venture capital word words, but, but it's, it's so important because we do see a lot of software technologies, you know, for example, in the building management space and they all are great. I mean, they're really exciting, but it's, um, but we, we often don't see a lot of differentiation from one to the next. So maybe one will have 20 customers and the other will have a hundred customers, but, you know, that's a really hard thing for us to invest in um, when we can't 
differentiate and see how someone can win at least one little segment of the market, uh, which could be still very large. We can completely relate to that at Therma. I mean, we make a disruptively priced, really elegant and easy to use temperature monitoring system. Well, temperature monitoring, it's not a commodity, you know, and we're disruptively priced. So that gets us into the market much more easily than otherwise would have been needed. But clearly there has to be more built on top of it to really separate and have sustainable competitive advantage. I would criticize us for that. You know, um, but on the other hand, we know we we know disrupt. You know, price disruption is a tremendous way to shake up markets, mm-hmm. and we've been you know pretty successful at that. This has been um, super super fun. Um, I would love for you to come back, you know, down the road and and talk to us some more. And I really want to thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. I really really loved it. Um, I love what you're doing, and um, hope I can come back at some point. If you want to stay up to date with Clean Energy Ventures, you can find them online at cleanenergyventures.com or on Twitter at CEVTeam. The Point of One podcast is presented by Therma, a smart refrigeration monitoring company. To follow along with Therma's clean cooling initiatives and Point of One content, find us on Twitter at HelloTherma and at Point of One Podcast. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play or on the web at climate.hellotherma.com.